0: and our hope is that you would have a gospel centered local church that you call home. Thanks again for listening. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be here. Um, today is a big day. Matt mentioned that. We've got uh, baptisms today, which is exciting. I love seeing people um, display outwardly what God has done in their hearts and their lives. So, uh, what a cool thing to celebrate. So, hopefully, you'll stick around. After service to to see that um, be a part of that, um, and as Matt mentioned today is Mission Sunday, I have to laugh a little bit um, just thinking about the fact that I'm standing up here uh, this morning on Mission Sunday. One, uh, when I was a high school student and also a stark raving pagan, I went on my first mission trip, and uh, I think I was 17 years old. We went to Mexico. And I always joke that the the drinking age in Mexico is you have to see over the bar. Um, And so I took an opportunity to indulge, um, and uh, that was not good. In fact, the church church I was going to at the time tried to have me banned from any trip ever. (laughs) No joke. Um, Again, I was a nonbeliever. The Lord uh, saved me. And uh, then fast forward several years. It's 2009. I am uh, leading a college ministry at a a fairly large church uh, in the Houston area. I loved college ministry, loved seeing college students respond to the gospel because of the fact that I had had myself met Jesus in college. Um, And I was asked to lead, uh, co lead a mission trip to Mozambique, which is in Africa. Um, I was uh, excited to do it. They asked me if I would be willing to take a bunch of college students with me? I said, yeah, absolutely, what are we doing? And uh, So they kind of gave me the rundown of the trip, and we were going to be doing these English camps, helping uh, Mozambican students learn English through the use of chronological Bible storing. Super cool uh, uh, way, strategy of, of reaching them. Um, but I latched on to the, the last part of what the missions pastor told me we would be doing, and that would be going on a safari in Kruger National Park Um, And so my recruitment strategy for the trip was, hey, do you want to go teach some people English using the Bible? And then we're going to go on a safari. Probably going to be lions, like the big five, like you're going to see all these huge animals and things. And and, uh, that was my recruitment strategy for missions. And I look back today at that dude and think, man, how off base were you? The Lord devastated me on that first trip and gave me a heart for people. And sure, yeah, it was fun going to Kruger and seeing the Lions and doing all that. That was, that was a blast. But it pales in comparison of getting to see young people who had not even previously considered that Jesus would be an option for them come to know Jesus. So uh, we are going to be digging into God's Word today and asking Him what it is He's called us to. And when I say us, I mean RCB. Um, us as a church and then you individually Uh, We are going to be in the book of Amos, as Caleb read for us earlier. Um, If you are using kind of the archaic version of the Bible, where you have to flip there, um, it's about two-thirds of the way through. Um, If you find Ezekiel, keep going right. If you find Matthew, go left. You'll get there eventually. But before we dive in, um, I want to pray and ask the Lord to meet with us. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to worship you. I thank you for this opportunity to open your word And to uh, hear what you have to say. God, there, there are people right now on this planet who have no idea who Jesus is. They have zero clue that the God of all creation stepped down into human history so that he could redeem people for himself. And so, Lord, as we sit in this room with nice climate control and uh, decent seats and uh, a sound system and lights and, and fashionable clothing and hot coffee and great snacks and all of these things, God, may we never forget that there are people that are suffering and dying apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ in their life. So, God, as we open your scriptures, I pray that you would move us, move us into action. And help us to be people who trust you. And Now, if you guys would, please, for a moment, just pray for me. Ask that the Lord would speak through me. And ask that it would be his words, not my own. That if something comes out of my mouth it's not of him, that it would blow away like chaff in the wind. And now I want you to pray for yourself. That whatever the Lord says, that you'd do it, even if it seems crazy. Well, Father, we love you. We praise you. We ask that you'd be here, that you would be exalted, that I would get out of the way, and that you would be seen. And for each person in this room, I pray that you'd speak to them individually, personally. Make the call to make your name known. Personal for them, God. We love you and we praise you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, Amen. So we already read through our passage. Caleb did that for us earlier, and and uh, I want to try and pick up on what Amos is saying. Um, After all, this was written by a shepherd 2,800 years ago. Um, So again, there's some archaic nature to this. Uh, It's written by a dude who he hung out with sheep all day long, and he lived almost three thousand years ago. What on earth could this have to do with our lives? So I think we may have a little bit of a dif- difficulty even kind of comprehending what he's saying, but I want to walk through it and we can begin to pick it apart and see what he's saying. So uh, again, Amos chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 4 and read through verse 6. says this, Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches, and eat lambs from the flock, and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sounds of the harp, and like David, invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls, and anoint themselves with the finest oils. So for those of you who are not in the room and maybe listening to the podcast, some pictures popped up on the screen behind me that help us to see that perhaps this prophet who spoke 2,800 years ago may be speaking more directly into our lives than we could possibly have imagined. We live in a day where we're told that we need to replace our mattresses every eight years. And to do that, you have to sell a kidney or mortgage your house because they cost as much as a used car, sometimes more. We also live in a time where our couch is kind of the centerpiece of our home, where we spend countless hours lounging, watching TV, and enjoying ourselves. As Americans, over the next year, you will eat, on average, 224 pounds of meat. We're a culture that's saturated with music. Whether through earbuds that are plugged into the side of your head or your car speakers or even the speakers at the places where we shop, music is constantly filling our minds. Looking for new and creative ways to express a message. We also live in a time where apparently you can buy a wine glass that will hold an entire bottle of wine. Apparently, some people need that. And then some of us are spending our child's college funds on essential oils. If you're an oily person, I'm sorry. (laughs) So here's the deal. All of this is slightly disconcerting because how did Amos start out this passage? He said, woe to those who and then begins listing all of these things off. So let, let me pause before we go too much further. Is Amos looking at us and saying, if you own a tempur mattress, or you enjoy the occasional lamb chop, that you are in sin? I'm going to go out here and say emphatically, no, that's not what Amos is saying. In fact, I own a tempur mattress. <laughs> before you decide to get rid of your mattresses, And before you decide to make the crazy decision to stop eating meat and become a vegan, Lord bless you, just kidding, this is not a prohibition against these things. We need to understand that first and foremost. The Lord doesn't look at us and say, that's sinful in and of itself. So what is he doing? Amos is not going after the things that these people enjoyed, but rather the arrogance and the false sense of security that they were finding in these things. These people found these things, found their identity in these things, in their lifestyle. And the Lord was angry because people were pursuing these things rather than the Lord. This was their highest aim. And they were missing the bigger picture. Instead of pursuing the Lord's calling on their lives, they pursued their own comfort, their own satisfaction, their own security, their own meaning. And it also came at an exceptionally steep cost to others, which we'll talk about in a moment. My first point, and I'm asking these in the form of questions, is this Am I pursuing comfort or a calling? Am I pursuing comfort or a calling? Again, Amos's words were aimed squarely at people who were unrelenting in their pursuit of comfort and worldly pleasure. They were living in a peaceful time in Israel at this point. Uh, they were stable politically. They had a strong military, uh, and, and they had come into this season of, of prosperity where there was a lot to go around for them. And they had this mindset that because things were going well, because they had everything that they needed and more, that supposedly the Lord was pleased with them. That because they had all this stuff, this was evidence that God uh, was pleased with them and perhaps even approved of how they were choosing to live. But the reality was that they were neglecting their, their one true love. They were neglecting uh, the the true worship of God and elevating their own comfort and their own lives over the importance of glorifying Him. Now, here's the deal. They were still religious people. They were going to temple. They were offering the sacrifices, but, but it had zero impact on their hearts. Their hearts were unchanged. Their hearts were still inwardly focused. To get a better idea of who we're talking about, these are the church people who can say the right things They can even do the right things, but their hearts and their minds are miles away from God. They're just going through the motions. They're counterfeit. They were so deceived in this that they believe that this is actually what the Lord desired of them. If we're not careful, we can find ourselves beginning to walk in the same path, uh, down the same road. I don't know if you know this about yourself. Here's what's true about you, about me, about us. Our hearts are endless pits of desire. You are never going to be able to satisfy that thirst for more. And our culture is going to feed it to you. If you buy this, it will improve and enrich your life. If you own this, it'll make your life safer and things will be more predictable. If you take this, it will make you a better version of you. Heck, I thought about buying new tennis shoes the other day, and on Facebook, I have have an ad about tennis shoes. I don't know how Facebook does that. Some crazy algorithm, right? Everything is geared towards saying, you need this. You have to have this. If you don't have this, then you are missing out. And we take it hook, line, and sinker. College students, this is something that many of you are wrestling with right now. Now, as you face the next steps of what your life is going to hold for you. What are you being told? Think about it. You've got to find that internship. The best internship. Because you don't want to get the wrong internship. If you get the wrong internship, this could set you up for just a a life of just awful devastation of perhaps maybe working at the wrong place. Make sure you get the best job opportunity, best job offer you can possibly get. Take the highest offer you can get. And make sure they do it on your terms. Weigh your options. After all, you're building your resume and people are going to see that. See, listen, I understand that there's things we need. I understand that we need to work and earn a living and uh, put a roof over our head and clothes on our back and food in our stomachs. I understand that. But when these things become the catalyst, to create the most comfortable, safe, and predictable life possible, then we have crossed the line into idolatry of self. And the idolatry of self will cause you to sacrifice anything necessary to achieve your desires, forcing us to live as though we are the center of the universe. And this is why I ask the question, are you pursuing comfort or calling? See, it's one or the other. It cannot be both. It is impossible to pursue comfort and God's calling upon your life. They take us in opposite directions. It's like trying to turn left and right at the exact same time. It does not work. You cannot do it. The pursuit of comfort is meant to terminate on us. But the pursuit of God's calling is meant to terminate on him. The pursuit of comfort places us as that central figure in all of creation. And the pursuit of God's calling places Him as that central figure in all of creation. One of the other things, I mentioned this very, very briefly, that that we fail to recognize is that in the midst of our pursuit of comfort, we forget that it often comes at the expense of somebody else. Our comfort will often come at the expense of somebody else. Look at the last part of verse 6. So Amos is addressing these people who have uh, given themselves to the unrelenting pursuit of all of these things. And he says this in the last half of uh, verse 6 But they are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Here's my second point Am I grieved for those who are ruined? See, the reference that Amos is bringing up goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 37. You remember the story? So Joseph, uh, he's the youngest son of his father. His father loves him dearly, puts a coat of many colors on him. His brothers are jealous because he has a dream that he says, hey, you guys are all bowing down and worshiping to me. Again, they're upset about this because when your younger brother tells you that you're going to worship him, you're like, "Uh -uh. (laughs) uh-uh, ain't happening. And so what do they do? They see him coming one day, they devise a plot, they say, hey, let's uh, get this dreamer and put him in his place. So they grab a hold of him, they strip off his coat, and they throw him into uh, a pit. And they're calmly eating lunch while their brother's sitting in a pit waiting for his fate, and some traders come, and they sell him into slavery. They sold him into slavery, why? Because he threatened their own comfort and their own self-exaltation. John Piper says this, When God ceases to be the treasure of your heart, more than likely your heart will fasten itself onto the pleasures and comforts of this life, and unless God graciously intervenes, your addiction to comfort will make you indifferent to honesty and hardened against the poor. Self-centeredness, the pursuit of comfort, and the exaltation of self will numb us to the struggles of our fellow man perhaps even cause us to use them to get what we want? Have we become people who are experts at loving ourselves and blind to the ruin of others? Have we completely missed the calling that Jesus said? You remember in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it. What is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. Have we become blind to this? See, here's the deal. It's really hard to be grieved by something that we either can't see or refuse to see. People in Amos' day were so absorbed in loving themselves that they had no care for those whose lives were being ruined on the altar, quite honestly, of their comfort. And sadly, sadly, the church, at least from my perspective, and I would, I would say the Western church, from my perspective, seems to have refused to see the reality of what's happening around the world. We've missed it. And it's reflected in what the church spends its time, energy, resources, people on. Programs that keep people busy but have no emphasis on discipleship to send them out. Multiple services with different styles of music so that you can worship Christ how you want to. Buildings that cost millions of dollars and filled with all of the necessary accoutrements to keep you comfortable. We have become so inwardly focused that we have missed, we have missed the ruin of other people. People who are image bearers of God. So what is it that we should be grieved by? Because this is a, a great question, right? If we are to be grieved by something, what is that thing that should be breaking my heart? What is that thing that should be tearing up my soul and keeping me awake at night? How about this? There are over 5 billion people on the planet who do not claim Christ as their Savior. In reality, the number is much higher than that because many of the people who do claim Christ as their Savior have no idea who He is. But I digress. Of those 5 billion, 3.19 billion people live amongst what we call unreached people groups. This means that there is no significant Christian movement happening anywhere around them, and statistically, they will never even walk past Somebody who has Jesus as their Lord, as their Savior, a Christian person. 3.19 billion people who when their lungs stop transferring oxygen to their blood and when their brain function ceases, any hope that they had on this earth will have evaporated into thin air and they will pass into a Christless eternity. 3.19 billion. I can't even fathom that number. They live amongst the 1040 window. If you don't know what the 1040 window is, go look that up. Um, It's basically a gospel-resistant block, uh, pretty much from uh, North Africa all the way over through Asia. And the natural question that I think that we would ask Okay, yes, this is a grieving thing. 3.19 billion people who don't have access to the gospel or don't have a significant Christian movement in uh, their people group. Uh, There are missionaries, right? Oh, yeah, yeah, there are missionaries. Well, good. Aren't the missionaries taking care of the problem? Okay. Right now, there are roughly 400,000 foreign Christian missionaries serving in the world right now and this is Protestant and Catholic combined, so those are all together, 400,000. For every 30 missionaries who deploy this year, only one of them is going to go to that 3.19 billion people. Only one. Currently, in this 1040 window area, there are about 13,000 missionaries working to minister to 3.19 billion people. I don't know if you're doing the math. That's one missionary for every 245,000 people. In other words, the odds are not good. This should grieve us. Let's talk for a moment about a specific place. Take, for instance, a place like Indonesia, Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation with approximately 234 unique unreached people groups. This represents around 170 million people who have little chance of hearing, much less responding to the gospel. And what is life like for an Indonesian Muslim? Listen to these words. There's a friend of mine who serves in Indonesia, and he says this, Life for an Indonesian Muslim is in many ways hopeless. They believe that their best chance to get to heaven is by fulfilling all of the rituals and requirements of Islam. Saying the Shahada, praying five times per day, fasting during Ramadan, giving to the poor in hopes their charity will be returned to them, and going on a pilgrimage to Mecca if they're able. They have been raised to think that this is the way to heaven. Their life is one of rote ritual even though most don't really know what the Quran actually says, only what others have told them that it says. Most will go to witch doctors and follow old ancestral animistic beliefs in addition to their Islamic rituals. It's common to see amulets, which are good luck charms, and fetishes, which are tiny little idols devoted to demons, hanging on their body somewhere, perhaps in their home. But there is no assurance of heaven. Let that sink in for a second. There is no assurance of heaven. So they will devote their lives to doing all of this stuff without any assurance that they're ever going to experience this paradise after they die. He says this, he continues, People are fatalistic. Everything's predetermined and therefore inevitable. And so they only live for today. Their faith is out is about doing without any inward change. And because of this, hypocrisy is rampant, corruption is found at every level of society, divorce is common, and trust is almost impossible to find. It is a truly dark lifestyle in which they live. Okay, so just try for a moment to place yourself into that setting. Try to place, imagine... Imagine you're a Muslim in Indonesia, and that's what you're living for. All of these rituals, all of these things that you're supposed to do, paired with the fact you have zero knowledge of Christ. You don't know that the God of all creation desperately wants you to know him. You don't know that the God of all creation stepped down into human history, and whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. You don't know that this same God who stepped into human history also lived a life that we couldn't live and died a death that we deserved so that we don't have to die. You don't know that he rose from the dead three days later, effectively conquering Satan, sin, and death so that we could then live and be set free. And you don't know that he's coming back one day to finally deal with the brokenness of this world. And somehow, somehow, even though Christ told his followers that all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to him, and he commanded them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that that I have commanded, that he's commanded, somehow, even though Jesus said that, and there are 2.2 billion people on the planet that claim Christ as Savior, you have never heard. Can you understand why the Lord was so upset with Israel in Amos' day? Here's a news flash. This is heartbreaking to the Lord today. He grieves the fact that there are billions of people who have very little access to Jesus' name, perhaps none, who have very little hope of responding to the gospel. this should grieve us as well. So how do we know if we're grieved? <laughs> how do we know if we're sad? I mean, we, can, we can come here and we can hear all of these numbers and we go, oh, that's so terrible. Um, and then immediately after service, it's like we go about our normal lives. We stuff our faces full of more meat and we go back to our homes where, where we have everything we need. So how do we know if we're grieved? I think the question is, what is going to change as a result of me seeing the plight of people around the world? Will my spending habits change so that I can leverage my resources for the expansion of the kingdom? Will I alter my life in such a way that I might play a part in these 3.19 billion people being given the opportunity to hear about Jesus? Will my prayer life change to be more focused on what God is doing among the nations? Or, this is crazy, will I answer the call to go? And make disciples. And I get we're talking specifically about jumping on a plane and moving somewhere, but I'm talking about go. Make disciples. That's here as well. That's Brian and beyond. What would our lives look like if we truly grieved over those who are ruined? In 1903, there was a 16-year-old boy, brilliant kid, who graduated high school at the age of 16. Uh, He was born to a very wealthy family, um, and his name was William Borden. And in 1903, once he had graduated, his parents had gifted him with a trip around the world. Imagine that as a 16-year-old kid who graduates high school. Your parents are like, hey, guess what? Go see the world. That'd be cool, right? So he graduates from high school, and he begins to travel the world, and he goes to places throughout Asia, throughout Europe, throughout the Middle East. And while traveling... He developed a deep burden for how bad people had it around the world and for the fact that they didn't have access to the gospel. And so he develops this, this deep burden for the loss and the hurting, and he decides that he's going to devote his life to serving in missions, that he is going to uh, reject this kind of American dream, and he's going to embrace the, the call to go, to help people find their hope in the Lord. One of his friends back home, upon hearing uh, of William's declaration to go, remarked this, throwing, said that William would be throwing his life away as a missionary to those heathens. People back home said that his life would be wasted. But my goodness, what a life well wasted. He had to answer the call of the Lord. And here's my third point. Will I answer when he calls? Will I answer when he calls? See, William Borden answered that call at 16 years old. Amos answered that call. Look at chapter 7, verses, I'm going to read 14 to 16. He says, I was no prophet, nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman, and a dresser of sycamore figs. I don't even know what it looks like to be a dresser of sycamore figs. I just don't think the wealthy people and the influential people did that. (laughs) But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. Now therefore, hear the word of the Lord. Amos wasn't a religious leader. He hadn't been trained in some prestigious seminary. He had zero influence to speak of. He wasn't from a family of means. He was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. God called him to go. And look at his response. God says, go, prophesy to my people Israel. And I don't know what this interaction between him and the Lord looked like. I don't know if he was like, yes, Lord. It doesn't say that here. What's the next thing he says? Now, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. He goes straight into action when the Lord calls without an ounce of argument, at least it's recorded here. This is simple obedience. When William Borden, going back to him, experienced this call of the Lord, he obeyed. In one of his journal entries, he recorded these words, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. He even rejected the opportunity to make tons of money back home. You know, when he graduated... He graduated from Yale and then went to to Princeton Seminary. He had big job offers to do influential and powerful things, and he rejected all of them. He rejected the opportunity to make tons of money. Why? Because he was grieved over the fact that there were Chinese Muslims who were perishing apart from the saving knowledge of Christ. So when he graduated from Princeton, he boarded a boat in December December of 1913 and he headed for Cairo, Egypt. He was going to stop there and spend some time studying Islam and, and Arabic. He wanted to know uh, how to better reach uh, the, the Kansu people in, in China and on April 9th, 1913, just four months after arriving in Egypt, William Borden died of spinal meningitis. He was never able to step into that mission, that thing that he had dreamed of. And probably none of you have ever heard of him. But I will tell you this, there is not a doubt in my mind that he answered the call of the Lord. Written in the back of his Bible, his family read these words, No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. he exemplified what it looked like to pursue God's calling over his own comfort. On his gravestone today in in Cairo, these words are inscribed, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. (laughs) Apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation of such a life. Will this be said of us? Will other people look at RCB and say, apart from faith in Christ, there is no explanation for such a church? Or will we simply be another church settling for the status quo, planning lots of events that keep you busy, but never send you outside these four walls? I don't know about you, but I want to impact eternity. I'm not willing to settle for the status quo. I know that Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Kevin, they aren't willing to settle for the status quo either, and my prayer is that you're not willing to settle for the status quo. He's called us to more. Restoration Church, Brian, is not and will not exist as an end unto itself. We won't. We will pursue the calling that the Lord has for us and reject the pursuit of comfort. We will spend ourselves boldly on the calling of the, Lord, of the Lord to make disciples and plant churches. We will be grieved over the ruin of people around the world. Of those billions of people who have no access to the gospel. We're going to refuse to ignore the plight of our fellow man, both here in Brian and beyond. And we will answer when the Lord calls. He will lead us outside these four walls. And if you're sitting here as a member of RCB thinking this is it, then you are deluded. We have to break out of these four walls to impact people. Up until now, the Lord has allowed us to invest ourselves in places like Guatemala, Kenya, the Middle East. And we've seen the Lord move in some pretty powerful ways. But this is just a drop in the bucket, and we have only just begun, Lord willing. We believe that the Lord has called us to look for ways to make disciples and plant churches in Indonesia. Your church leadership has been praying about this. We've thought about this. Where do we want to invest time, energy, resources, people? Where do we want to send our people? In Indonesia, kept coming to the forefronts of our hearts and minds. We don't know what this is going to look like, but we want to be faithful to what he has said when he told us to go. And we were praying that we could be a part of seeing some of those 170 million people in Indonesia who don't know Christ, that we would be a part of seeing some of the unreached reached. And if the world wants to look at us and tell us that we are wasting our lives, then so be it. We will have lives well wasted. But know this, that a life wasted upon the altar of the Lord is no waste at all, but rather the most dignified and meaningful use of a life possible.